I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of The Women in Tech Show, a podcast about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. Rebecca Parsons has been working in technology for over 30 years. Throughout her career, some of the things that she's worked on are system architectures, software design patterns, distributed systems, and best practices. Having started programming at 13 years old, she has seen significant technological transformations. In this episode, we talked about the evolution of technology and how that leads to changes in how we develop software. Rebecca is currently the CTO of ThoughtWorks. In 2018, she was the recipient of the Technical Leadership Abbey Award. Abbey Awards are presented by AnitaB.org, a global nonprofit with a goal of reaching 50-50 gender equity in tech by 2025. Abbey Awards honor and celebrate women who have led technical innovations and made a notable impact on business or society through technology. This episode is part of a series of shows that highlight the work of previous Abbey Award winners. For more information about the Abbey Awards, go to anitab.org. Before we move on with the interview, I'm really excited to announce that Season 1 of the 5-Minute Mentor podcast is now available. This is a podcast where you'll get advice from prominent people in tech, authors, journalists, artists, and more. For more information about the show, go to mentors.fm. Thank you. Rebecca Parsons, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thank you for having me. You started coding at 13 years old. Can you talk about your introduction to coding? I was in an algebra class, and we had just switched school districts, and there was some uncertainty about whether the grades I had gotten in math in my old school district were actually relevant or not, if you will. And so I had actually learned all of the things my freshman algebra teacher was trying to teach me back actually in the fifth grade. And so he realized that very quickly, and... At the time, he was taking a course at the local university in programming and PL1. And so he bought another copy of the textbook, and he gave it to me and said, I will run your programs for you uh, for whatever reason, and I never have learned why, but our school had a key punch machine. And so he gave me a key to the key punch room. So I just started working my way through the book and he ran my programs for me at the university when he ran his. And that's how I learned to program. And I just, I fell in love with it. I thought it was fantastic. And what time was this roughly? Early to mid seventies. Okay. And you're highlighting a lot that he was running your programs for you because you couldn't do it yourself, right? It was more about you program and then you take the program to the machine. Exactly. It was done on punch cards. So it had to be taken to the university and the operator had to feed the cards into the mainframe computer at the university and it would generate a printout. And then I, so it was a very, very slow feedback loop. (laughs) And throughout your career, you've tried new things and even helped define and adopt new approaches to problems. One of the examples that I saw is your work in evolutionary architecture. But before we dive into what that is, we need to understand how we got there by looking at how technology has evolved and how it has changed software architecture. So I want to begin with a quote that I've heard you say multiple times from Ralph Johnson, a computer scientist. And he said, 
Software architecture is about the important stuff, whatever that is. Can you explain what this means? Well, when you look at different kinds of organizations, there are going to be different aspects of architecture that are more or less important for the success of that particular organization or for the success of that particular computer system within that organization. And one of the examples that I like to use, um, around the year 2000, I worked on a trading system. And when people hear trading system, they think high throughput, low latency, everything's got to move fast, performance is critical. But this particular trading system at that organization, in their wildest dreams, they figured they might do 100, perhaps 200 transactions in a day. Not in a minute, not in a second in a day. But each transaction was worth billions and billions of dollars, and that was in the year 2000. Now, if I would have looked at that trading system and built it in a way that corresponded to the normal architectural characteristics of a quote-unquote typical trading system, well, it wouldn't have been right. Similarly, there are systems out there where security of particular kinds of information just isn't that important. But on the other hand, if it's a medical record system, if it's something that's holding your personal identifiable information or your financial data, security is a huge component of it. So what this is basically saying is your architecture needs to take into account what are the architectural characteristics that most determine success. And some of the other ones you can just ignore because they're just not that important. Got it. And I want to understand now how we got to a point where we're using and talking about evolutionary architectures. In your 2018 keynote at Grasshopper Celebration, you mentioned that when you were just starting out, you had mainframe computers and no databases and that things were very simple back then. What did architecture mean for systems during this time? Well, people rarely talked about architecture because there was a dominant model, what I described as mainframes, and you know they had file systems then. They didn't even have what we would consider a database today. And so there just weren't that many choices. Even at that time, though, you did have systems, say, from Digital Equipment Corporation, the mini computer. And so you did have slightly different architectures, but if you looked at it from either the hardware perspective or really the software perspective. Time-sharing systems were not that common, and the way people thought about programs, you know, they were, everything really was a monolith back then. And so software architecture, hardware architecture, none of those things, you just didn't have that many degrees of freedom, and so you didn't have that many choices to make. And in fact, when I went to graduate school even, when you said computer architecture, what that meant really was the architecture of the chip how computers were physically put together. People really didn't talk about architecture in relation to software or the way systems you know, could communicated with each other. That just wasn't as big of an issue at that time, just as I said, because there were so few choices that it wasn't necessarily an interesting discipline to talk about. So after mainframes, because yes, like you're mentioning, there are you know, very few paradigms and People weren't really thinking about it in terms of software architecture. What came right after mainframes when we started to 
think more about this software component and software architecture? Well, I would say the big shift really happened with client-server, which was roughly in the 90s. Even before then, you did still have distributed applications. You did have, you were starting to see more interesting networking going on. People were starting to use different networking protocols to allow different types of computers to talk to each other. But I think from a software architecture perspective, the real revolution came with client-server. When you had the client PCs um, talking to the, the big back-end server. And that's when people really started thinking about, okay, what processing should go where in these business applications? And, you know, one of the things that is really still true today, although the difference is shrinking, is really the disconnect between scientific computing and business computing. And in business computing, say in the 80s, people were looking at the large relational databases. How do I solve problems like that? The scientific community was looking at protein folding to do more what they called rational drug design and trying to design new drugs to solve problems, climate modeling. Reservoir modeling was happening in the oil and gas industry when they were trying to figure out how to get more resources out of a particular well. And so really during that time, you had people thinking about scientific computing, which in many ways was more architecturally complex. And then you had more business computing, which the big revolution, as I said, was the advent of client-server. And when on the business computing side, we started thinking more and more about what kinds of things could run on a PC, what kinds of things, how should we think more about the interaction between the user and the computer program. We got much more flexible user interfaces during that time. And so that was really the next big shift, if you will, from a software architecture perspective. And would these shifts go hand in hand with changes in you know, the hardware and the equipment from the time, would you say? Well, it was really enabled by the personal computer because before then, the devices most people used to interact with a computer was basically just a normal terminal. You know, uh, we used to call them green screens, although, you know, not all of them even were green in their print, but we called them green screens. Even at that time, you know, there were still these complex graphics workstations used for things like chip design and things of that nature. But primarily, if people were accessing a computer, they were accessing it through one of these very simple green screens. Once the PC came along, you had much more power on the interface device, and so you could make forms and you could do interactions and display information in ways that you really couldn't do before. I mean, there was actually something called ASCII art. People would draw pictures with the kinds of characters that you would put on a screen because you didn't have the ability to display things in anything close to a photorealistic way. But once we got personal computers, you could start doing more with graphs and all of that. In other talks that you've given around this topic, I've heard you mention that there was a time when we were just trying to plan ahead and even try to think of you know, architectures in terms of would it still work in two years or five years. Can you talk about the way in which people were approaching software architecture during that period of you know, planning a lot? Well, it really comes back to the pace of change of business and technology relative to 
the timescales IT departments were looking at to create software systems. And when you look at the early applications that people wrote on these systems, they were accounts payable systems or accounts receivable systems or a very simple address book. And there isn't a whole lot in the world that's going to change how accounting works, how you post to a general ledger and, you know, dual entry book, bookkeeping and, and all of those things, the rules were very well understood and very stable. And technology, while it was improving significantly, it wasn't expanding the category of pieces of software that, that a traditional business would use. Relational databases coming on the scene was a really big deal. But for a long period of time, in business computation, you had people running databases and people writing COBOL programs. And the business requirements of those were relatively stable because they were addressing problems that really weren't changing that much. When you look at both the software and the hardware stack these days, well, you have web frameworks and you have graphics frameworks and you have persistence frameworks and you have different kinds of libraries for different protocols, different systems wanting to communicate and, and XML parsing going on. And there are all of these different pieces of these frameworks of our software stack and those just continually change. And so when, one of the standard lines when uh, Neil and I give our joint talk on this, this is one of Neil's lines, regardless of the audience, you know, I will bet you 100 in whatever the local currency is. So $100 if we're speaking in the U.S. If you can guarantee me what the name is of the JavaScript framework that you will be using in two years. And of course, everybody in the audience laughs. And, you know, the punchline is that's, you can't tell me because it probably hasn't even been written yet. Well, back when I started, you might get a new release of the system software once a year or something, but you weren't having the radical changes and the introduction of new capabilities. We didn't have anything like Docker or Kubernetes, Mesos, any of those things. You know, and just the fallout in you know the container ecosystem and the container orchestration ecosystem. You know, things move quickly now, and so trying to say I'm going to tell you absolutely what the technology stack is going to look like for an application I build in two years. Well, that's nonsensical. And yet, when I started, you could legitimately talk about a five-year roadmap. And sometimes even a 10-year roadmap would at least be indicative. Those concepts, when you're talking now about technology, they make no sense. And it's because of the increased diversity of tools that we're using, the increased complexity and capabilities that we have, in our technology stack and how rapidly they're evolving. And it also depends on the fact that we're addressing problems now where the expectations of what the software will do will change. Just think about how people's expectations of how they're going to communicate with their bank changed when people started using iPhones. Now all of a the sudden, they, all of these banks had to figure out a completely different way of dealing with their customers. And those kinds of changes are happening more and more rapidly. So business requirements are changing faster and technology is changing faster. And with both of those, it simply makes that level of two and five year planning irrelevant. Got it. Which is one of the core ideas behind evolutionary architecture, right? To be able to 
respond to changes like this, like new tools, new platforms, new technologies, right? Exactly. And, and I would say it's really inspired from two perspectives. One is the approach to extreme programming. And, you know, the tagline for extreme programming is to embrace change. You don't know where it's going to come from, but you know what's going to happen. So, you know, just decide that's a good thing. And then from the field of evolutionary computation. But one of the important parts of evolutionary architecture is the recognition that even though you know change is going to happen, you don't know what that change is, is going to be. And so the more you try to anticipate it, oh, I'm going to build you know, an, ad an adapter to allow me to plug in different approaches to this problem because I know that's going to change. But what happens if that's not where the most disruptive change is coming from? What have you done? You've increased the lines of code. You've increased the complexity of the code. You've introduced more bugs because bugs are correlated with lines of code. You've probably made the architecture and the program more difficult to understand. And when the change happens that doesn't correspond to what you predicted was going to happen, you probably have a harder time making the change that you have to make because you've got all of this other stuff in there. And so the basic premise of evolutionary architecture is rather than trying to predict how things are going to change, have your system and your architecture in a position where it can adapt as quickly as is possible to whatever change happens while maintaining the integrity of the technical, the architectural characteristics that you think are important. So we can't say everything's going to be easy or quick, but the intent is to make it as easy as possible and as quick as possible to make whatever changes are necessary as a result of whatever development might have happened, whether it be in the technology landscape, in your business requirements, in the hardware that's available to you, or changing regulations, or whatever it is that's causing you to have to change your system. What's an example that you can think of a decision that was made for an architecture that allowed it to have this characteristics of evolutionary? So there was a, a colleague of mine who was telling me about a system that he was building. And there were two competing approaches to how the various components of the system were going to coordinate their activities. And most of his team wanted to go one direction, but he felt strongly that this other mechanism was going to work better. But he really couldn't articulate why, and he never really managed to convince the rest of his team that he was right. And so what they did is they looked at how the system would be different, how they would implement the rest of the system differently based on the choices that they made of this coordination mechanism. And then they effectively built an abstraction layer. And then they went ahead and implemented what he thought was right. And a couple of months later down the road, he acknowledged that he was wrong and they were right and that they should have done this in a different way. And because they built that abstraction layer, it wasn't hard for them to switch to the other approach. Now, I'm not advocating that everywhere you could possibly think of something potentially changing, building an abstraction layer, because that, again, just makes things more complicated. It's more code. But in this particular case, they knew that they didn't have enough information to make this particular decision. And so they 
constructed this abstraction layer as a way of allowing them to change that part of their system with a minimal amount of change. So that's one example. Another example, if you think about a microservices architecture, the level of encapsulation that microservices have really allow you to make very isolated decisions about how a particular microservice is built. And so if something radically changes and you want to implement a microservice in a very different way, you can do that without touching any other service within the ecosystem. So that's another form or another way to achieve an evolutionary architecture is, is just that, that level of encapsulation. And you're trying to look at the encapsulation from the perspective of what types of things fit together from a business perspective. And so when you talk about microservices architecture, we talk a lot about the bounded context idea from domain-driven design because that gives you a logical, business-relevant boundary, encapsulation boundary to draw around a microservice. So those are just a couple of examples. So it sounds like during the process, it involves a lot of leveraging previous design patterns and some architecture patterns, right? Yes. Got it. Before we finish, I just want to switch gears a little bit. So I want to talk now about something that I hear a lot, which is that women live the tech industry at higher rates than men. You've been in technology for over 30 years. What are some of the reasons why you've stayed in tech and why you've enjoyed what you do? Fundamentally, I'm a geek. I've always known I was a geek. When I was introduced to programming, I found a very specific way of expressing my, my geekness. I am passionate about technology. I can't imagine doing something else. It continually fascinates me, the potential to solve problems, the pace of change, and the ability to learn new things. I just find it fascinating. I'm passionate about it the way painters are passionate about painting or musicians for performing. I just can't imagine doing anything else. And I think that's been why it just hasn't mattered to me that people didn't think I belonged in technology because of course I do. I mean, it's in my blood. <laughs> I can't imagine doing anything else. So you're saying you did have instances of, you know, feeling different, you know, by the people that you're surrounded with, but that didn't really get to you because your love for it is very strong. Yes. I mean, I had a professor when I was an undergraduate who got up in front of a class and said, women are incapable of understanding math and computer science. And there were three other women in that class with me, and we all bonded together and said, we're going to prove this guy wrong. And all four of us ended up with A's. Many of the men got B's and C's. Some dropped out. None of us dropped out. We all got A's. And it was like, we're going to demonstrate to you that you are wrong, that this has nothing to do with me being a man or a woman. This has to do with some people are good at some things, some people are good at others. And I was really lucky in that my parents instilled in me and my brother and sister this just inherent confidence that whatever we wanted to do, if we worked hard, we could do it. And so it never occurred to me that I couldn't learn something or I couldn't do something because that's just not how I was raised. I was raised to believe that if I wanted to do something, if I set my mind on it, if I worked hard, I would be able to do it. That's great. That's really good that you were able to prove people wrong. It's a good approach, I think. 
One more thing that I wanted to ask you about is you were the recipient of the Technical Leadership Babi Award back in 2018. What does getting this award mean to you? I was overwhelmed when I was chosen for that award. We have a saying in Inside ThoughtWorks that everyone is a leader, and I truly believe that. But to be recognized by an organization like AnitaB.org as a technical leader, uh, that was very humbling. I look at the other winners of the award, and it's hard for me to think about being in that cadre because there are you know, some truly incredible women with you know, tremendous accomplishments. And so I felt very honored, very humbled to be chosen for that award. Do you think also getting this award had any impact in your career? It just reinforced many things that I already had felt was important. I believe very strongly in role models, in providing support to others. And so that just reinforced in me this desire to not hide under a rock, So I do podcasts like this. I give conference talks and I get up on stages and such because I believe it's important for young women who also have a passion for technology to be able to see other women up on stages like that and hear their stories and get that same sense of, of course I can do this. I love technology and I want to and I can be a part of this. Last question. What is some general advice that you would give to young professionals? It doesn't have to be, you know, tech related, just what are some thoughts that you would say to them? To never be afraid to learn something new. So many people, when they think of learning, they think of school and, you know, the teacher at the front of the desk and tests and all of that. But learning is so much more than that. And if you approach your career and your life as what's something learn, new that I can learn today? What are questions that I don't know the answers to that I can go off and answer or figure out how to answer? It keeps the world fresh. It keeps your career fresh. And I think it also helps us address some of the problems that the world has. So just don't be afraid of learning. Just because you don't know something doesn't mean you can't do it. Just go ahead and try anyway. Well, Rebecca, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great having you. Thank you so much for having me.